Well, I'm excited this morning uh, to do something I've not done before, uh, and that is kick off a sermon series. Uh, so, so I've got about an hour and a half of material, and thanks be to God that we're spreading it over the next four weeks instead of today, right? That's good news. We start with good news. And uh, the reason I have, feel like I have, there's so much to say is because the topic I'm bringing you today is something that I've been thinking about a lot for a long time. It meets me when I come and when I go, whether I'm looking for it or not. Uh, but the things that I want to say about it, um, it, it really require uh, more than a, than a single word. And so I'm really grateful for this four-week period to talk to you about uh, the question, what is the church? What is the church? I think it's a super important question But it's not where we're going to start, Uh, because I I don't think many of us are asking the question, what is the church? I don't think that's something that we're wrestling with for the most part, but I think the question, what is the church, is going to help us answer another important question that many of us are asking with quite a bit of intensity, Um, and that question is, is church worth it? Is church worth it? So, uh, some of you maybe have been at St. Andrew's for a long time, and you may have uh, encountered uh, disappointments and hurts, and you may be asking, is church worth it? Maybe you've just come to St. Andrew's from somewhere, else, from somewhere else, and you've experienced hard things, and you're coming here thinking, well, let's give it one more try. <laughs> is church worth it? Uh, there are a lot of people today who are asking that question explicitly. They are trying to weigh Is it worth being involved in the church? Is it worth um, committing to this thing? Is it worth coming on a Sunday morning even? And and, and for many, the answer has, you know, clearly been no. But for those who are committed to the church, even for for those people, uh, we're asking the question, well, you know, um, maybe we assume church is worth it, but the question is, how much of myself should I invest in this? Like, how worth it is the church? And even if we're not thinking about it, we're making that call. We're we're working through that every time we choose to participate or not to in any level in the body of Christ. Now, I stand before you today a pastor. I've served St. Andrews in some capacity for 13 years. I've invested a lot of my life in the church. So it's not a spoiler, right? I'm not giving away the ending when I tell you that, yeah, I think it's worth it. I really think it's worth it. That's not not a shock to you. That's where we're going to end up. All my cards on the table. But I don't want to brush too quickly past the difficulty here. I want to be honest. Because the truth is, friends, church can be, and often is, really hard. Church can be, and often is, very disappointing. The church is imperfect, and it's cliche to say, but it is made of people. That means it's made of relationships. And so, by definition, to invest yourself in the church is costly, and it is messy. And so if you have been around for very long at all, you've probably been hurt in some way in the church or by the church. I have been (laughs) over the course of my life many times. And these days, well, I mean, you've got your Bible. You know how to read it. Uh, You you can read it for yourself. I mean, you've got the, the internet with countless sermons and podcasts and teachings and all kinds of great worship music. And these days, again, there have been so many horrible public failures in the church, especially these last few years, that the question just gets louder and louder and louder. Is church worth it? 
I think there are a lot of people who would say yes to Jesus, but organized religion, no thank you. And I'm going to be honest, again, I wrestled with this myself personally in some pretty real ways for a number of years. In high school, college, and even as a missionary, I was very serious about following Jesus, but I really felt like it was a me and him kind of thing. And honestly, I was pretty disappointed with the church, and oftentimes I felt like it was more in my way than it was something helping me. And that was just arrogance, but like, that's, that's how it felt to me a lot of the time. I was disappointed with the church, and there was a part of me that was like, I think I can just go and do it better by myself. Me and Jesus. But somewhere along the way, that started to change for me. I started to realize that I needed the church. And that didn't happen because I, I stopped seeing the brokenness in the church. It didn't happen because I stopped seeing the weaknesses and the failures in the church. If anything, I was more exposed to those things. And yet... Um, if, if there's a single way that my, I have changed what I believe in the last 15 years, it's that my ecclesiology, my belief about what the church is and what it means, has changed, and that I have learned to value the church so much more, so much more. Why? Well, because when I went off and read the Bible by myself, <laughs> what I found out is the church is God's idea. I found out that God thinks the church is really important. In fact, God thinks the church is worth it in all of its messiness. There's a part of us, that, well, there's a part of me for sure, that thought for a long time that the messiness I encountered with the church was something new. <laughs> um, you know, but you go back and read the epistles, right? Like the second half of the New Testament is a bunch of letters that are being sent because the church is a mess, There are people arguing about really important, significant issues, disagreeing about them. There are leaders fighting with each other. Um, There are crazy sins occurring that are embarrassing and problematic. And so uh, the church is working through those things, right? It's always been that way. And yet, the church is not a mistake. It's God's idea. And God believes, Christ believes, that the church is worth it. It's part of what the cross means. And so when you start to think about the church, when, when you stop ignoring the church, when you start to take seriously that the church matters to God, you begin to see it, like I, I was saying before, everywhere. You begin to see that the church affects how you read scripture. It affects how you grow in Christ and make disciples and are a disciple. It affects how you go on mission and, and share Christ with the world, whether or not Uh, the church is a part of that, makes a huge, huge difference. Now, I think that part of the reason it's hard for us to believe that the church is worth it, I think part of the reason that it seems like church isn't worth it sometimes to us, is because we have misunderstood what church is. So this brings us back to the question that runs through the series. What is the church? Now, I talk about this a whole lot more in the class that I'm teaching right now in between services, But if you haven't been a part of that, I'll say a little bit. And that is that all of us have been shaped profoundly by the culture that we live in. And that doesn't just mean like the movies and the music or whatever. It's like our deepest values, our assumptions about how the world works are mostly invisible to us, but we've absorbed them from the culture that we live in, the culture we exist in. And our culture, as it turns out, is highly individualistic, and and, and it is a consumer culture. And so we have been shaped in our deep hearts and in our habits to be consumers. So we don't think about it, 
But we organize church and we approach church as consumers. And so all too often, uh, church ends up being for us um, something like a store. A place where religious professionals provide religious goods and services, teaching, preaching, counseling, classes, music, for religious consumers to consume, right? Um, It becomes an event that happens a couple times a week. We don't do this on purpose, but it's how we've been formed, and so it's the shape that the, the church ends up taking. And friends, the truth is, if the church is merely a place for me to go and get um, resources to help me in my personal, private, spiritual walk with Jesus, just me and Jesus, I'm just going to go get a little help, some tips and tricks, some resources, well, then it probably isn't worth it. Because there are always slicker, bigger uh, religious products that I can download or whatever um, without getting into the messiness of this, right? I can go do that by myself. The problem with that is that church as store doesn't look anything like what Scripture imagines when it talks about church. Nothing at all. And so what we're going to investigate these next four weeks is what does God think the church is? What does Scripture say the church actually is? It's not a self-help center for my personal spirituality. Then what is it? From God's perspective... We're going to look at four pictures from church, uh, four pictures from the Bible about what's, what, what the church is. And they are uh, the family of God, the church is a new nation under King Jesus, the church is the body of Christ, and the church is the temple of the living God. The church is the family of God, a new nation under King Jesus, the body of Christ, and the temple of the living God. So we're going to take one of these a week, and we're going to start with the family of God. What is the church? The church is the family of God. Now, if we're going to understand what the church is, if we're we're going to understand who and what we are, we always want to start with who God is. Like our identity flows from his identity. Um, He defines who and what we are. So who is God? How has he revealed himself to us? Well, he has revealed himself as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He is one and he is three. He is perfect love and perfect unity, a community of one. And he is defined by his relationship to himself. The term father and son, these are relational titles. They show us how God relates to himself. In a sense, he is a family in himself. And so when we, if, if we should ask the question, what does it mean to be saved? What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to follow God? And one of the ways that Scripture describes an answer to that is to say that we're being included in God's family. So in Romans, what we just read a second ago, Paul says, and he likes this, he uses this a lot actually, he says that we have been adopted. So he says, look at Jesus, look at the relationship that he has with the Father. Uh, It's an intimate relationship, a relationship where he hears from the, from the Father and does what the Father says. It's perfect unity. They're in perfect agreement and perfect intimacy. And he's saying that because of what Christ has done, because of his sacrifice, we get to have that exact same relationship with the Father. We've been invited into that unity, into that intimacy, so that we can call him not just Father, but Abba, Daddy, right? It's this, this in, extremely intimate kind of connection. We are heirs fully included in the family of God. 
At other times, uh, Scripture uses another analogy of family, and that's that Jesus is the husband and the church is his wife. But I think both of these pictures, adoption and marriage, are both saying the same thing. Uh, they're both describing what Christianity is about, what salvation's about. They're saying that we have been included in the perfect love and unity that exists between the Father and the Son by the Holy Spirit. We have been folded into that eternal, perfect union and love. In other words, we have been included in God's family. We've been brought into his family. Now that's really important and really beautiful. It speaks to the nature of our relationship with God and what salvation means and what the future holds for us. It's the gospel, part of it, but a part of it always, almost always, gets left out and forgotten um, in our cultural context. And that is that this adoption, this marrying, it doesn't just change my status with God. It also changes my relationship to you and everyone else who is a child of God. If I've been joined to God and you've been joined to God, then we have also been united to each other. In the most profound and permanent way imaginable, we have been united. We have become a family, an eternal family, God's family. And it's clear that Jesus wants his followers to understand that in following him, that part of, saying, part of what they're saying yes to is entering a family like this. Uh, so in our gospel passage that Seth read a moment ago in Mark chapter 3, uh, Jesus is teaching and his mom and brothers show up, and everybody's like, hey, your family's here. And he says, who's my family? This is my family. Now, why is he saying that? Is he saying it because he doesn't care about his mom and his brothers? He's mad at them? No. Uh, but he's elevating the people of God. He's elevating the people who are following Jesus in him. This is a family. But, as a side note, it is kind of uh, encouraging in a way to see that even Jesus' family is kind of a mess, Right? <laughs> Like, it's like, Jesus is at it again. Go get him and bring him home. You know, like, even Jesus' family. They have family. He had family issues. Families are complicated. They're messy. That's part of the point, right? So, Mark chapter 10, we move a little further into the book. The, this this uh, rich young ruler comes, and he's talking to Jesus, and Jesus tells him to give away everything that he has, and he, the, the, the rich young ruler leaves sad, and Jesus says, well, it's it's." almost impossible for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And his disciples say, what about us? We've left everything to follow you, so what do we get? You know? Like, we already did that, so like, we're pretty good, right? And his answer is not what we would expect. We expect eternal reward to be his answer. And he says eternal life, but before he says eternal life, he says, everyone who leaves fathers, mothers, sisters, brothers, lands, kids, all those things will receive a hundredfold more fathers, sisters, brothers, lands, those things, in this life and in the life to come, eternal life. What's he saying? If you leave your family to follow me, you're getting, you're getting another bigger family, the church. So it's shocking to us in a way because we've experienced its brokenness, but part of the, the reward, part of the invitation is to become a part of this, this family, the church. The bottom line is you cannot be a child of God without being a brother or sister to everyone else who is in Christ. And that's part of what we see playing out in the early pages of Acts. 
we see the early church doing some stuff that strikes us as really radical. They're eating all their meals together and they're sharing all their resources. They're selling their stuff and taking the money and splitting it up between them to meet everyone's needs. And that shocks us. It's so radical. It's hard for us to imagine uh, doing anything like that. But it is not so radical for a family. It is not so radical for a family. It's not so hard to imagine a family eating together and sharing its resources. It's not weird to you if I do that in my own home. So recognizing that because they belong to Christ, they also belong to each other, the church began to take care of each other like family. I'm going to say that again. Realizing that because they belong to Jesus, that also meant that they belong to each other, the church began to take care of each other the way that family does. And mission for them often, often simply meant extending that same care to those not yet in the family. So church meant treating each other like family, and treating outsiders like family is what mission looked like. So friends, look around. What is this? What are we doing? <laughs> this is a family. This is God's family. This is your family. It doesn't always feel that way. It does not always feel like that. Because again, we've been shaped deeply by consumerism. We, we are so... Um, deeply connected to our individuality and our, and, our, and our security and freedom that comes with that, it's very hard for us to imagine that this is good news. It's really challenging for us. Um, consumerism means that we've been shaped to treat people like products. And so in some ways, uh, we relate to other people kind of like a pair of shoes. You know, um, when they become uncomfortable or embarrassing, need a new pair. We get some new ones. I'm not saying we're as callous as all that most of the time. But our lives are so busy and so full, when we run up against those kinds of challenges, more often than not, we say, it's not worth it. It's just not worth it. This relationship's not worth it. The church is not worth it. But, but what, part of what I'm trying to say here is that that's not just, like, bad. It's like, it's, an, it's a missed opportunity because God has given us the church as a gift. It's one of his main gifts to us. It's one of the main ways that he loves us because he knows that it's only through the hard work of loving other people over time that we actually learn to trust and forgive and hope and have mercy and to love our neighbors as ourselves in any meaningful way. That's not something we can do hypothetically. We have to do it with actual real people and they're all imperfect, right? <laughs> Committed relationships are always costly. They're always messy. But they are also the path to personal maturity. Because if we're always able to avoid conflict, the kind that comes when we deal with real people and real relationships, if we always get our own way, well, we just won't grow. We will never become mature. Now, when I talk about the blessing of the messiness of the body of Christ. I'm not talking about abuse. That's real and terrible. <laughs> um, and, and there are certainly uh, kinds of hardship that, just, that are not constructive in the body of Christ. And those need to be addressed. The same is true in the home. But I'm talking about the fact the church and family, the church is a family. It works like a family. The church and the family are both messy and disappointing precisely because they're collections of imperfect people, but that is also where the blessing lies. 
And Jesus says it's worth it. The cross says it's worth it. We're pretty inconvenient to Jesus, right? We're pretty costly to Jesus. And still he chooses to enter into relationship with us through his own death and resurrection. Jesus says we're worth the trouble. Love is worth the trouble. Friend, the gospel that you need to hear today may be that you are worth the trouble. Not just to Jesus, but to us. You're messy, and you're inconvenient, and so am I. And you're worth the messiness and the inconvenience. With your quirks and your rough edges, with your sin and your doubt, you're worth knowing you're worth investing in, you're worth being there for. And so are, so are all of them too, you know? <laughs> if we haven't treated each other that way, it's not surprising, right? Like the nature of sin is that it divides, it separates. Because of sin, we're always looking for someone to blame. We compete with each other in destructive ways because of sin. And if sin has its way, we all go our separate directions until we're all alone. We cannot do this in our own power. But friends, part of what I'm trying to say is that part of the, the gospel message itself is that not only has Christ, through his blood, uh, made us right with God, he's also made us right with each other. Like, part of what Jesus accomplished was the tearing down of the walls of division between us. And so unity is impossible in the world, but not in the church So this isn't a guilt trip. It's the gospel proclamation. Part of the good news that we cannot lose is that God has reconciled us to each other. Not not because we're all the same or we like all the same stuff or we have the same politics, but in spite of those things. And that's why it's a miracle. That's why only Jesus can do it. And when the world sees that, precisely because of our differences, we love each other anyway and care for each other like a family anyway in the mess, Then Jesus is revealed to the world. Then the gospel is proclaimed. So again, this isn't a guilt trip. It's the gospel proclamation that you are the family of God, and that means that you're family to each other. We are family. And that means, yeah, that there is work to do, but not work we have to do because God won't love us if we don't do it. Work we have to do because so many of God's promises, so many of of the good things he wants for us, are tied up in the church actually being the church. The church is a lot of how Jesus means to love us. It's a lot of how he means to be present to us. It's a lot of how he means to make himself known to the world. And so if you want him without the church, it's going to be a lot harder to find and experience those blessings because that's where he put them, in the messiness of loving each other. Obviously, we can only do this. We're only able to love each other because Christ first loved us, right? Like that is the starting point. That's where this all begins. And the world desperately needs this kind of church. It's almost like our world has been designed on purpose to keep us apart, to keep us separated, right? Our homes are these isolating boxes. And then we get in our car that's a box to drive to our cubicle, you know, and then we go back in our box to our box, and then we, we get out this little piece of glass, 
where we, we watch other like fake lives being lived out where people have relationships with each other and then we go to sleep and we do it again. We are so busy and, 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 and again, we didn't even choose any of this, right? Like it's just the way our world is organized. It is organized to keep us apart through literal physical walls, but also through keeping us so busy that there's never any time for real relationships with each other. Jesus has died to make us one. He has died to unify us, to make us a people, his family. How do we say yes to that? How do we start to actually live that way and in doing so, like, reveal his goodness to a divided world that is desperately alone and hungry for relationships? Because it's not just us that's divided, everybody is, you know? Everybody's connecting digitally, but, but not for real, and it's felt, and it's like a sickness that runs through our culture, and so hungry for real relationships. So how does the church learn to be family in order to also be family to those outside? How do we do that? Well, even as Jesus made himself vulnerable unto death for our sakes, we're going to have to be vulnerable to, real, to, to each other. Uh, you can't have a real relationship without vulnerability. It's going to mean and it's, it's harder for some of us to reach out, but for, for others, it's harder to let others, you know, reach out to us. It's going to mean letting others into our lives and getting into the lives of others. It's going to mean caring for each other as family. And hey, I know that that picture of family can be even a really broke, like that can be a really hard picture too, because maybe you've experienced terrible brokenness in your own family, but the church is the place that's meant to be redeemed. It's the, it's the family that you're supposed to be able to come to in light of the brokenness, of perhaps, of your family at home. We are meant to be that family to each other. And so the vulnerability that we'll experience in this is real, because once you care, you can be hurt. Once you're invested, you can be disappointed. You will be taken advantage of. It will cost you time and effort you don't think that you have. But God thinks it's worth it. It's, what Jesus, it's part of what took Jesus to the cross, this belief that love is worth being vulnerable for, and that the church is worth loving in spite of all of its faults. And so today he invites us to trust him and take the risk of loving each other because he loved us first. He invites us to trust him and take the risk of loving each other because he loved us first. So briefly in closing, what I'm saying is, Look, the truth is, friends, like I'm in a position to see so much that goes on here that you, get, you don't get to see. And it's a blessing. I, I see hard things that you don't see, but I also see beauty that you don't get to see. And there are many ways in which quietly and in small ways, there's already this kind of real family here at St. Andrews. But we've, got, we've also got work to do, right? There's also lots of room to grow. So how do we do that? Just basically summarizing, like first, don't be surprised by the messiness like, again, I'm not talking about abuse. There are things like that that have to be addressed. But just the messiness of relationships, don't be surprised by it. It's part of what we're called into. Working these things out together are part of the way that Christ's love is meant to change us and be revealed to the world. The messiness isn't a mistake. But we're only able to get in on that when we're starting with the truth that God has loved us while we were still sinners, right? He forgives us. He's willing to adopt us in spite of us. And when we begin there with his love, with his forgiveness, with his grace, then out of that comes the strength for us to adopt each other.
to prioritize each other, to make room for each other, to give care and to receive care, which again in our culture is often harder. Now you cannot do this for everyone in the church, of course not, but, but you can do it somewhere with someone in some way. And these many small connections, if we start to lean in this direction of being family to each other, they start to overlap and link together, and pretty soon the whole body begins to look different, more and more, like what it actually is, not a service, not a weekly meeting, not a store where religious products are provided to religious consumers, but the family of God. You are the family of God. So in just a few minutes, we're going to come to the altar, we're going to come to the rail. Always the Eucharist is the sign and means of our unity. As we kneel side by side, we take the bread and the wine, we are reminded and experiencing the truth that we have been forgiven, that we have been made right with God, but in equal measure, the whole gospel, we've also been made right with each other. We have been made a family. Jesus' forgiveness covers us and the relationships between us. He is making us one. As, as, we are being, as we eat the food, as we eat the bread and drink the wine, we are being joined to him, united to his life. But as I am united to him, I am also united to you, and you to me, and all of us together. So as you come and receive that unity, as you come and experience that unity shoulder to shoulder on our knees, hear the good news, family of God. And, and, and I guess this is the invitation. Like there are things in the way of being family for all of us. And so the first ask is, as you, come to, as you come to the table, like ask the Lord to show you what's in the way for you. Why is it hard for me to receive this good news that I've been made a part of, 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 of a real family, the family of God? Where is their fear? Where is their past hurt? Where is their disappointment? Where is their anger? Where is their sadness? Submit that to Jesus. Submit that to him. And in that place, receive God's love, that spirit of adoption that Jesus says, I love you and you're mine and you're worth every bit of trouble. Like you are trouble, but you're worth every bit of trouble. And I love you. Right? Like that's the truth. And then ask him as you receive that love where he would have you love somebody else in this body like family today. Amen? Jesus, we confess again, we cannot do this in our own power. By the power of your Spirit, through the Eucharist, make us one. Jesus, as you and the Father are one. It's spiritually true already. We pray that we would be able to live into it today by your grace. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.